You and I live in a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture that wants to make us, like them, pagan. Some of you may be thinking, what does Pastor Mark mean by pagan? What is, what is that? Good question. Good question. The general definition of the word pagan is a person holding religious beliefs other than the main world religions. That's the general overarching idea of paganism. More specifically, in the United States, that word is often thought of, or most often thought of, as referring to a religious belief system other than Christianity, usually associated with the worship of nature. As I reflected on these definitions, I narrowed it down to this. A pagan is someone who worships creation rather than God. You can narrow it down. A pagan is somebody who worships creation rather than God. So we live in a pagan culture who worships creation more so than God. Creation would include things like nature, mankind, animals, the cosmos. It could be take hundreds of, of identities. I believe that describes a culture, cultural context we live in now. We no longer live in a a uh, culture where the main uh, influences are Judeo-Christian beliefs and morals. We don't live, that's gone. And sometimes we forget that that is gone. That is never going to come back. We're not going to change our culture to go back. From right now, you and I live in a pagan culture that's never going to go back to what it was in the 50s and 60s. We're going to live in a pagan culture for the rest of our lives. Our culture has moved away from those uh, morals and influence of Judeo-Christianity more and more over the last number of decades and has now even begun moving towards wanting to completely erase anything to do with a biblical Christian worldview. More and more we are seeing that in our culture. They don't like what we have to say. They don't like... What, how we see the world. They don't like that we look at things completely different than they do, and they want to erase that. So we must ask this very important question. How do you and I, how do we reach the pagan culture we live in? How do we reach them? How do we effectively fulfill our Savior's command to be witnesses in a pagan culture that each of us experiences every day? How do we do that? How do we fulfill the command to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in a culture that wants to erase our worldview? We've come to a place in our series in Acts where Luke is going to help us answer that question. And before we go any further, please join with me in prayers. We ask God to open our hearts and minds to the truths of His Word. Father God, we bow before You right now. And we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word. That you would prick our hearts in a way that would motivate us to obey the command to witness. Father, we live in a culture that doesn't want us here. We live in a culture that's not going to understand us. And Father God, we need your help in being the witnesses you have called us to do or to be. Lord God, we ask that you would help us become better witnesses for you right here and now as we study your word in Christ's name. Amen. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. It's on page 1178 of your pew Bible. Uh, I want to make sure that everybody here knows uh, those red pew Bibles don't belong to the church. Okay? They're just there for you to take home if you need one. Feel free. If you don't have a Bible, if you uh, uh, want one, if you want one that you can write in and, 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 and fold over and mark and all that kind of stuff, take one of the Red Pew Bibles home with you. So, what I want to do is we're going to look at kind of where we've been. We're going to look at the second missionary journey, all right? 
And we saw last week that this journey started in chapter 16. And Paul and Barnabas have just begun that in chapter 16. And I want to show you here, uh, I hope you can see it well, uh, they have uh, had, in chapter 16, had the Macedonian call, which moved them, okay, away from uh, Asia and up to Macedonia. And if you can see it there, you'll see Philippi. And that's where we ended with Paul and Barnabas, uh, not Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, all right, they were in um, Philippi. They had obeyed the call to be witnesses in Philippi, and even though they ended up in prison because of that witness, okay, uh, they had a great response to their witness. And when they got out of prison, okay, we find that the, the city of Philippi uh, did not want them there in a similar way that the culture of our pagan culture today does not want us here. And they were asked when they were released, please leave the city. And that's where we find ourselves at the end last week. Now we see, I hope you can see that, up here in the top you see Philippi. They traveled down in chapter 17 to Amphilopolis and Apollonia and Thessalonica and Berea. And we're going to read that right now. Uh, let's read chapter 17, 1 through 5. Now when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollyana, uh, Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on the, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of, of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Here we have, we see that God had blessed their witness in Thessalonica. They had begun to make changes, but the Jews had become jealous and had formed a mob and were ch chased them out of town. And as they chased them out of town, Okay, starting in verse 10, drop to verse 10, chapter 17, verse 10. They, they chased them south and west. And when they, came to, when they came to Berea, okay, when they were chased to, from Thessalonica to Berea, it was a great time for them because they had great ministry there. But because the Berean Jews did not say anything, the Jews from Thessalonica came down, okay, and chased them out of Berea also. Specifically, they chased Paul out. And what I want you to see is that for Paul to be able to be safe, he had to go all the way down here in the bottom of the screen to Athens. That's a long travel. So God had set it up to where they had great ministry in Philippi, they were chased out. They had great uh, ministry in Thessalonica, they were chased out. They had great ministry in Berea, and they were chased out. And Paul kept on moving. Paul kept on booing. What we see here is that it is often a, just almost like a law, a, 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 a promise, that whenever we are being witnesses for our Savior, great joy will come to our lives when we see people coming to Christ because of our witness. But at the same time, being bold witnesses will also more often than not bring some persecution to our lives. Those two always seem to go together. Every city Paul goes in, there's great response to the gospel. And every city that Paul goes into, what happens? He gets chased out. In every city that Paul and his dream traveled to, there were mixed responses to their gospel witness. But we need to understand something. They never allowed their persecution to get in the way of their mission. I had a... a uh, recently heard a great quote from a pastor uh, named Drew Tauscher who serves at Fleetwood Bible Church in Fleetwood, uh, Pennsylvania. Here's what he said. Don't let the moment you are in pause the mission that you're on. Don't let the moment you are in pause the mission you are on. Amen? We have a tendency to do that. You see, we want to see people come to Christ, but we don't want the persecution. 
And so what we are is we're very tentative in our witness, in our bold witness. We're very tentative. We take that step and we kind of feel the waters. Are we going to get any pushback? Are we going to get any persecution? And if we think we are, what do we do? God hasn't called me to witness yet. God has, this isn't the right time. And what we often find in our churches, in our own lives, that we actually let the moment we are in, let the persecution that we are in, pause the mission that we're on. And Paul never did that. And this is exactly what we'll see throughout all of the second missionary journey. Paul and his team never let the moments of persecution pause the mission they were of being witnesses for Christ. In fact, God uses uh, persecution to open more doors for witnessing opportunities. And that's what we see Paul, uh, God doing here with Paul. He must flee Berea. He must flee Thessalonica. And he ends up in Athens, which was not on his plan. It was not on his itinerary. And God is going to open a tremendous door of witness for Paul because he was persecuted in Thessalonica and Berea. And so because of persecution, Paul ends up exactly where God wants him to, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through his gospel witness in Athens that we find a pattern for reaching those who are lost in a pagan world. What a blessing it is to watch the Apostle Paul reach the pagan city of Athens because it helps us know how to reach the pagan culture that we're in today. When Paul entered Athens, he was walking into a city that was a hub of intellectual thought, of architecture, of medicine, and religion. It was a hub. It was a tremendously important city. Remember, Paul was by himself. Paul didn't have a team to rely on. Paul didn't have uh, anybody to go with him. He went into the city uh, because he was hiding, okay, by himself. This large, intellectual, uh, religiously rigorous city Paul was witnessing to by himself. He was here waiting, like I said, for his team to show up. The last number of months have been very stressful because of the persecution he encountered. But instead of seeing Athens as a place to take a break from his mission, instead of going around and seeing all the, 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 the tourist sites, he was grieved. Look at what it says in chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him. Athens was known throughout the Roman world empire as, uh, for its elaborate temples and pagan gods. And Paul didn't have to look around a whole lot to uh, see uh, that this city was in the grip of paganism. It was often said that, the, and that Athens had more idols than people. In fact, through history, some history uh, recording of history, uh, some scholars say that uh, Athens had up to 73,000 idols in the city. 73,000 idols in the city. What did Paul do? He didn't take a vacation from all of his stress, from all of his running. He became a light for, Christian, for Christ in Athens. And so how did he approach that mission? How he approached his missions in that city helps us understand this question. How do we reach a pagan culture? How do we reach our pagan culture? The first thing we need to see is this. We see the need and we own it. We see the need and we own it. Look at um, chapter 17, verse 16. And before I go any further, I want to give credit to uh, Pastor uh, Jerry uh, in Charlotte. He was my son's pastor. And he did a really good job of outlining this. And I talked to him. We had talked about this. And so some of the outline that we were using this morning is his outline. I want to give him credit because he just did a really excellent job on it. And I want to give him credit for that. And so what we see, in, uh, let's look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. First, we need to understand we need to see the need and own it. Paul didn't just ignore paganism surrounding him. He saw the need to bring the light of Jesus Christ into a very dark city, and he owned that need. He saw this city as needing to hear the one, about the one true God. He owned it. He saw there was an issue. He saw there was a problem. He saw there was darkness, and he didn't just look at it. How many times do we walk around our world, walk around our communities, and we understand that we live in a pagan culture, and we just ignore what we see? 
Our hearts are not grieved. Our hearts are not pricked about the darkness that we see. We need to be like Paul. We need to walk into our culture and we need to look around and open our eyes and our hearts need to be grieved. Our hearts need to be uh, provoked that the people we see, the communities that we live in need to hear about Jesus Christ. And we need to own that because we have to understand something. Jesus Christ put us here. We are in this time, in this place. We live in the houses we have. We have the jobs that we have for one reason, and that is because God put us here to be a witness, and He has chosen that context for each of us. And each of us lives in a pagan culture. And each of us has a job, has a command by Christ to witness. It's easy for us to look around the world and say things are bad. We post how bad it is on social media. We listen to podcasts that tell us how bad it is. We turn off the news because we're tired of hearing how bad it is. But we don't really ever own it. We don't ever really embrace it. We just walk by it and ignore it because it interferes with our life if we don't. Let me ask you this question. Do you know of any idols in the city you live in? In the town you live in? Do you know of any idols... In the city or town you live in. I'm not talking about statues like Paul saw. The statues Paul saw were only symbols of the things that drew people away from God. Do you see anything in your city, in your culture, that draw people away from the one true God? If you do, if those things are out there, then you see idols. You see that your community is full of idols because all those things have a tendency to draw people from whom? The one true God. You see, an an idol is anything that is more important in your life than God. Anything that you or your neighbor places above the one true God is an idol. It could be a job or a career. It could be a relationship that you're not willing to let go of. A hobby, an identity, control over your life, success, approval of others, sex, Comfort and security, entertainment, education, all those things can become idols. Because you have a tendency or we have a tendency to take these various things and put them up on the, uh, uh, the pedestal in front of God. And those things take our focus more than anything else. Those are idols. Do we see those idols throughout our community? Do we see people worshiping those more than God? Absolutely. It could even be good things. Good things can become idols because we've let them uh, take the place of God. Family can become an idol. Family can, can become an idol. If your family takes precedence over God and what God has asked you to do and what God has asked you to do in ministry, then your family has become an idol. And it's no different than the idols that people were worshiping in Athens. It can be good things like ministry in the church. I know of people in the church who they, they love ministry and they invest in ministry, but it takes the place of them following God in other areas of their lives. And ministry, I'm a, I'm a teacher or I'm a deacon or I'm this or look at all the things that I did here. Those things all begin with what? I. It could be ministry. It could be an idol in your life. It could be tradition. How many of us have family traditions? Can those things become idols in our lives? Absolutely. Does this church have traditions? Absolutely. Are traditions in and of themselves wrong? No. But can they always have a tendency to become idols? Yes. If they ever supplant God. An idol is anything that anyone gives more allegiance to than the one true God. An idol is anything that anyone gives more allegiance to than the one true God. God. If we are honest, I think we all must admit that there are probably more idols in our culture today than the 73,000 that were in Athens. There are a vast number of things inside this church and outside the doors of this church that people give their allegiance to other than the one true God. Is your heart provoked by the immense number of idols you see in our culture, as Paul's was when he walked into Athens? Is your heart grieved by the lostness, the darkness that those idols represent? Do we ever 
we will never be able to really be effective witnesses in our culture until we see how much our culture needs our witness. And when we come to that realization of that need, then we need to own it. We need to take the responsibility to do something about it no matter what it costs us. If we want to reach a pagan culture, then we need to see the need and we need to own it. And this is what Paul did when he walked into Athens. He saw the need and he owned it and he did something about it. And that is the first step in reaching a pagan culture. Let me ask you, where are you at with the first step? Do you see the need? Do you own it? Does it provoke your heart when you walk through the, the, the cities and the towns and the stores and, and the culture that we live in? Does your heart get provoked to a point where it drives you to do something because you own it and you understand of the darkness that is within the culture that we live in? The second step in reaching a pagan culture, our pagan culture is found in verses 17 through 21. And we must engage on their turf. We must engage on their turf. Let's look at verses 17 through 21. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of four divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the uh, Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Will you bring some strange things to our ears? We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What we see here in these verses is we must engage people on their turf. Paul engaged them on their turf. He goes where they are. Paul does not wait for them to come to him. He first goes to the Jews who lived in Athens because that's what he usually did. And then he goes into the marketplace to reach anyone who would listen. He engaged them on their turf. Are we engaging our culture on their turf? Are we always waiting for somebody to come and to tell us this? Please tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or are we out there Engaging on their turf, where they live, where they are, what they in, involved in what they are doing. How often did he do this? We find in these verses he did it every day. He engaged with the pagan culture every day, and so must we. And we see in verse 18, look in verse 18, okay? In verse 18, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign dignities because he is preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And in verse 19, we see that they actually invite Paul to come and talk to them. Remember, I told you that Athens was known for being a city of intellectuals, uh, those who enjoyed debating various philosophies, which we see in verse 21. Verse 21 says that's all they did. Paul's witness for Christ in the marketplace. Think about what happened here. First of all, Paul was chased to Athens. A great door for ministry a day in a dark and pagan city was opened up. So Paul engages on their turf. He sees the need. He says, I'm going to own this. I'm not going to ignore it. He moves out into their turf, and he starts in the, uh, in the Jewish synagogue, and he presents Christ there. He goes to the marketplace. He goes out. He engages them on their turf. And you want to know what? God opens another door. God opens another door. What he did here is what we see is the, these philosophers, these Epicureans and, these, and uh, these Stoics, they go, what are you talking about? Why don't you come and join us and talk? Who opened that door? Paul? No, God did. And that door would never have been opened if Paul had not engaged them on their turf first. So many times we wonder why God doesn't give us the opportunities to lead people to Christ. Why we find it hard to witness. A lot of the reason is we're not on their turf. We're not where they're at. And we, and we have to understand something. The more that we're on their turf in an appropriate way, the more that we engage them, then God has a tendency to do what? Open doors that would never have been opened to us unless we were engaged on their turf in the first place. 
Do you want to be an effective witness in a pagan society, our pagan society? Then we need to get engaged on their turf. The Epicurean uh, philosophers, they, they generally believe that God existed, but that He was not interested or involved with humanity, and that the main purpose of life was pleasure. Does this sound familiar? Don't many of our cultural, uh, in our culture believe similar things? Oh, I believe in God. I know that He may exist, but they live as He is so far removed from them that He has no effect on their lives whatsoever. Do we, do we see that day in and day out? They live as the main purpose in life is to get what they can, pursue the newest and greatest offering of pleasure that the world has to offer. I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. But that has no effect on their lives. They just believe that He exists. That's kind of what the Epicureans believed. Then there were the Stoic philosophers. The worldview that God, God was the world's soul. And that the goal of life was to rise above things so that no one showed any emotion or response to pain or pleasure. Everything was God. They, they believed that everything was determined by fate, so there was no reason to be passionate about anything. And these, both of these uh, philosophers who had radically different worldviews didn't understand what Paul was preaching and teaching. Some saw him as a babbler, a person, who was teaching what that, a person whose teaching was disjointed and nonsensical. And when they said he's a babbler, they were actually making fun of Paul. They were making fun of Paul. Look at verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say? He's, he's talking disjointed things. He's talking about things that we have no idea about. It, it's not even worth our time. Then there were the Stoic, uh, then there were the Stoic philosophers or other philosophers who thought he was teaching about another foreign god. And in verse 19, we see that these men took him to the um, Areopagus, which the Romans called Mars Hill. And I was really hoping to have some pictures from Kelly and Adam's uh, trip, but um, I couldn't get them to load correctly. And so I, I apologize. She went through the, her, her, and found those for me. And we find these men looking there. Look at verse 19. And they took him. Who took him? Who opened that door? God did. But who took him there? The people who disagreed with him and brought him saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you were presenting. Amen? Paul would have never had that opportunity if he had just stayed in a house waiting for them to come. Paul engaged on their turf and made such an impact that they invited him further into their turf. I want you to understand something, okay? I want you to understand something. It is rare that anyone will just ever walk up to you and say, tell me about Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. Rarely does that happen. If I were to ask you in here, uh, how many of you want to be able to have the, the pleasure and the privilege and the joy of leading somebody to Christ, I think most everybody in this room would raise their hand. But if you're not engaging them on their turf, those opportunities are going to be few and far between. You can wish that and you can want that and you can say, I want to lead somebody to Christ. I want to see people come to Christ. I want to see our church grow with new believers. But if we are not engaging them on their turf, if we don't see the need and take ownership of it and go out in there and talk to them on their turf, then none of that is going to happen at Sardis Baptist Church or in our individual lives. Are you engaging the pagan culture God has placed you in? Are you intentionally looking for ways to engage those who need your witness? If we want to see God open doors for those who need Christ in our pagan culture, then we must see the need, own the need, and we need to boldly get off the sidelines, step onto their turf, and tell people about Jesus Christ. There's one more thing that Paul did. He said, see that, uh, that Paul went want us to see or that we see in Paul's uh, missionary work in Athens. He saw the need and owned it. He engaged them on their turf and he contextualized the message. We must contextualize our message. We see that in verses 21, 2 through 31. The gospel message never changes. I want you to know that. 
It never changes. It's about Jesus living and dying and being buried and rising again and doing all of that so we can be saved from our sins. That's the gospel message. Take a look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the uh, Aragopas, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. The gospel never changes, but we can contextualize it. You can be a witness for Christ at work or at school and not tell the gospel in the same way. You can present it in two different ways, but still keep the gospel. You'll speak to it, uh, the gospel to an audience of children this differently than you will speak the gospel to adults living in an assisted living facility. You're going to present the same gospel, the same good news, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for our sins, but you're going to put that in a context that the children can hear and understand, or you're going to put it in a context of those older folks who live in assisted living. And it's going to be the same gospel, but we're going to contextualize it. There are three things that we find that Paul does in contextualizing the gospel to those in Athens. The first thing he does is he makes contact. He establishes a point of contact. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopas, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He established a point of contact. He said, I can see you are searching for something and that you are very religious. This is a very good thing. Paul didn't get mad at them or railroad them or yell at them and tell them how evil they were. He just said, hey, I see that you're very religious. I, I see that you are really searching for the truth. He says, I even found an altar to an unknown God, which they would have, been, which they have, would have all been familiar with. <clears throat> he said, I have good news. These are very intellectual men. And he says, I have good news. I can tell you the name of this unknown God. I know who he is. Point of contact made. He drew them in. Everybody would have known about that idol to an unknown God. An idol that they were uh, set up so that if they missed any of the gods out of the 73,000 that were in the, uh, Athens, they were covered. Because this is to an unknown God. Maybe we forgot one. And Paul says, I know his name. I know who he is. Point of contact. Jesus did this also. He dealt with the Samaritan woman one way and with Nicodemus a different way. We establish points of contact based on who we're talking to and what their situations are. When we enter the, their turf, we must establish a contact point with them. And after we establish a contact point with them, we need to tell them the truth about God. We're not just uh, establishing a point of contact to be friends. We're not just establishing... Remember, Paul had not been in Athens very long. And he was on their turf, and they invited him further into the turf. And he has this audience who's listening to him, and he goes, Oh, by the way, I know that name of that unknown God. And now he's going to reveal a bunch of truth about God. And this is so important in our pagan culture because there is really very little truth about God in our culture today. There is very little truth about God in our culture that hasn't been grayed out, uh, dispersed, or, or covered over with the white noise of the world we live in. He's going to give them the truth about God's Word. Look at verse 24. You worship as, uh, this, uh, therefore, what you worship, that 
as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You know what he's doing right there? He's saying that God is creator. God is creator. Is that a truth statement about God? He says, of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. And then he moves on to verse 25. Nor, does he, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The next truth about God that he gives is God is the sustainer of life. He gives breath. He gives life. God is the creator. This unknown God that you, don't, that you search for, I know, is the creator God that made all the world. He's also the God who sustains life. In verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation a mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. And he says, God, in verse 26, is the ruler of nations. He is the creator. He gives life. This God that you don't know about, that I'm revealing to you, and he is the ruler of all nations. Amen? Are all these things very pointed truths about who God is? Absolutely. And then he looks at verse 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And what we see in verse 27 is that God is knowable. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of life. He is the ruler of the nations. And He is knowable. He is not so high up in the world, in His dwelling place, that we can't know Him. God has revealed Himself to us. Amen? All truths about God. And then we look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, and as even some of you, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And the last thing he says is God is the father of humanity. God is the creator. God is the sustainer of life. God is the ruler of the nations. God is noble. God is the father of humanity. Did the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers need to know that God? Amen. And did, is that God comparable to any other God that they had in Athens? Absolutely not. And he says, I know the God that you need to know. He walked into their turf and he said, let me introduce you to the God that you don't have a name for. There's the point of contact in the truths about God and then we see the gospel call. Look at verses 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being like, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He gives a gospel call. He introduces them to the God. He's engaged with them on their turn. And he says, now you need to understand this. These verses that we just read prove that God is not only the creator of all, the judge of all, uh, not only the creator of all, but he is also the judge of all. And there will be a day of judgment. His son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and was buried, and rose again, is the person who will be that judge. And then he calls them to repent. He calls them to repent which means to have a change of life, a change in direction. I want you to understand something. Knowing that there is a God, understanding there is a God does not mean you belong to Him. There's a point when you look at life and you say, I am looking at life from a pagan viewpoint. There are things in my life, that are uh, many things in my life, that I have put God uh, above God. And when he says he calls them to repent, he says, I, you need to, this idea of repenting is you need to turn away from your worldview. You need to turn away from your worldview. Not marry a new worldview, to, uh, uh, not combine uh, the, the Christian worldview with your worldview. You leave your worldview, you turn towards Christ, and you learn and you grow in his worldview. You look at life differently. You look at the earth differently. You look at the universe differently because you understand the unknown God is the God who is above all other gods. Let me ask you, have you really turned and repented 
Is God really sitting on that top pedestal in your life, or are there a lot of things that obscure that? Are you really have given your life in allegiance to God and nothing else, that He takes the first place in your life? That is what we all need to review and understand about our lives. Who really does have first place in your life? Who are you really do you really have allegiance to? What do you really have allegiance to? And here's an easy, uh, one way that you can maybe think about this. What thing in your life would you not give up for God? What thing in your life would you not give up for God? Because you have to understand something. Okay? I don't care if that's an identity. I don't care if that's a hobby. I don't care if that is whatever it is. What won't you give up? Because if you won't give it up, that is your God. That is your allegiance. What Paul has recorded here, most of these uh, uh, discussions that took place up on Mars Hill would often last uh, even sometimes for days. So what Luke gives us here about Paul is, is a, a summary of what Paul interacted with over the with these philosophers but it's a summary that helps us reach our pagan culture and as we uh move and, and begin to close here and this is not in your notes so i just wanted to make sure that you could turn your notes over and put this point on there okay this is not in your notes all right how did they respond how did they respond look at verse 32 and 34 now when you hear and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysus, uh, the Peget, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. I want you to understand something. How they responded to Paul's witness will be the exact same way that the world will respond to your witness. It will be the exact same way. In verse 32, the first part, we see that many of them just outright rejected. If you are a bold gospel witness on their turf, are you going to get rejected? Okay, I'm going to say, are you going to be rejected? Amen. Okay? We have to understand that. And so many times we pause our mission because we're fear that we, we are afraid that we're going to get rejected. A family member, a friend is going to reject us and therefore we just kind of back up and we put on pause with the, the mission that God has given us to do because we're, in, we're fearful of rejection. But we have to understand something. Even in the first century, the first response we see is rejection. And then if we drop down to the, the middle part of verse 32, we see that people, uh, that some of these philosophers said, hey, we're going to further consider this. We're, we're going to back up and we're going to kind of think about, are we going to have people who, who say that with us? Absolutely. We're going to have people who, 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 who are, 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 it, it blows up their worldview. It's a completely new way of thinking and they have to sit down. How many of you have to process big things? I mean, I, I do, okay? And I often say in counseling, uh, when I'm uh, counseling uh, uh, married couples or people who are going to get married, okay, I have, to, I have to remind them that they're not always going to respond to big things in the same way. And so when the wife or the husband says, I need to stop and process this, the other person, okay, who may not have to, needs to do what? Back off, okay, and let them process. Allow them time to think through it. Because sometimes there are people who just need to have time to think through it. And that's what we see here when Paul reveals the name and the character of this unknown God. They go, we need to consider this further. And then in the last part, in verse 34, we see that what? Many believed. Amen? Okay, hold it. Is this the most important thing that happened in these people's lives? They believed, amen? 
They believed. Their lives were changed for all of eternity because Paul was a witness. Paul saw a need and he owned it because Paul walked in their turf and said, let me tell you something. Because Paul presented a gospel and he had people whose lives were changed for eternity because of his gospel witness in a pagan society. You want to know something? If Paul had come into Athens and not paid attention to the darkness, had not paid attention to the idols, if Paul had just said, I'm going to take a vacation here, I've been under a lot of stress, I've been chased out of two or three towns, I just need a break, then Paul would have never seen the last part of verse 34. He never would have seen people come to know Jesus Christ. We will not see people come to Jesus Christ because of our witness if we do not walk in a pagan culture like Paul did. We're fooling ourselves to think that people are just going to see our lives and come to us one day and say, tell me about Jesus. That's not going to happen on a normal basis. It's when we walk in, we understand that there's going to be rejection. We understand that there's going to be persecution. But we also understand that there is light and life after our witness to people. And we are willing to take what, pay whatever it costs to see somebody's eyes open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must see it and own it. We must engage on their turf. We must contextualize the message if we want to reach the pagan culture that each of us lives in today. We must see it and own it, engage in their turf, and contextualize the message to where they can understand a clear teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our world is, in many ways, searching for the unknown God. They try to find their satisfaction and, and, and who they are and what they are and what they want to do. And they try to find their joy and happiness in things that the world has to offer. And they keep butting their heads up against the wall. They keep finding that it fails. And they keep uh, uh, trying and trying. And they get more and more depressed. Because they're searching for an unknown God that they're not going to find the answer to unless you and I and other Christians in this community go out and tell them, who that unknown God is. Let me challenge you and encourage you this morning. When you go out that door, when you go out that door, ask yourself, how am I engaged? How am I engaged? How am I obeying the command to be a witness for my Savior? And when you walk out those doors, understand you're walking into a pagan culture. And they want you to become like them. And they're going to strive hard at making you adopt and drift to become like them. But we must stand firm and say, let me introduce you to an unknown God. And I will go wherever you want me to go on this turf to explain that to you. Amen? Let's bow your heads for just a minute, please. Are you reaching the culture that we live in for Jesus Christ or are you just living your life? Do you see the, the evil and the darkness? Do you own that? What in your life can you specifically point to and say, I am engaged on their turf because the gospel's worth it? We can't save people. We can't change their hearts. But we can be bold witnesses and help people understand the God that they are so searching for. The God of the Bible. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a mission. We have a command. How are we doing? Father God, we bow before you this morning. And as such 
and encouragement. When we read in the text, when we see what Paul did in Athens, that we understand that you can change hearts and lives for our witness and that you are going to direct our lives and open doors for us as long as we are open as see the evil around us and see the, the need and own it. Father, help us to, to walk out and look at our town and look at our communities and look at our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools and say, this is where God has placed me today to be a witness for Him above everything else. Lord God, some of us have difficult family members that we are maybe given up on or scared of or we just don't want to rock the boat. Father, I pray that we would help them see the God that they're even searching for. And Father, there are people sitting here this morning who maybe have never understood what the gospel is. They've gone to church all their life, but they've never really given their hearts and their minds to Jesus Christ. They've never made an allegiance to God as their number one goal in life. Father, I pray that they would be able to have their lives changed, that you would open their eyes and their hearts. Father, for all of us, we all struggle with drifting. We all struggle with having the things of this world become important to a point in our lives where they begin to encroach on our allegiance to God. I pray, Lord God, that we would be aware, that we would keep our eyes open, and that we would, as a body of Christ, walk alongside with each other to help us see our blind spots. Father, we're not immune to life getting in the way of our allegiance to God. But Father, I hope and pray that we would grow. I pray, Lord God, that we would see and understand that we live in a pagan culture that so much needs to hear about you. In Christ's name, amen.